2: Welcome once again to Advantage Connors Podcast. I'm here with uh, my co-host and, and partner, Brett Connors. Brett, once again, we're, we're sitting at our dining room table.
0: In person, good morning.
2: But today, we're, we're changing gears. Usually we talk a little tennis, we talk a little golf, we talk a little bit of this, a little bit of everything, but we're staying right on cue. Mm-hmm. We're talking music. Right. And we're, we're talking music, that meant something. That goes back to the time when it, it changed the way the sound really came across.
0: Right, and we didn't right? have to go far for him. He's yeah. our neighbor.
2: Right, songwriter, mm-hmm. singer, right, guitarist, actor, piano player,
3: mm-hmm. friend,
2: friend, neighbor, mm-hmm. right here in Santa Barbara.
3: Very bad tennis player.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you didn't want to talk You didn't, want to, you do didn't that. want to
3: do that. You said that, <laughs>
2: Peter Noon. Welcome.
3: Hey, uh, nice to see you guys. It's good to be here in your home Herman, and uh, sitting at the dining room table. Herman Herman's Hermits. Herman of Herman's Hermits. The artist, formerly, F O R M A L <laughs> L Y, known as Herman.
2: So we've been friends for for a long time, and I ride a bike uh, through uh, Santa Barbara, and I see you walking and hiking, and and uh, you you are nonstop busy. You're either up exercising. You're a new grandfather. Yeah. uh, Or you're on the
3: road. I'm on the road a lot. I've got 108 concerts this year. And it's a weird thing. It it suddenly got, I think it may have been the pandemic thing when everybody closed down and everybody thought it was like the end of the world. You know, we were all watching TV all day and getting depressed and and thinking, when will this, looking in the sky, oh, look, an airplane, maybe this is the end of the, you know, it's coming back, okay. And I think what happened to people my age... Is that when it was over, we all decided to make a a run for it, and now all the every concert I've done this year for the last two years is sold out. Beautiful. People are happier than they've ever been. The spirit has changed. Has has changed. They're more into having a bit of fun. Do you know what I mean? They're going. Hey, we may may, may, maybe this may be the last. Let's use our next twenty years and do fun things right? rather, right. Than, Life is rather than look at the, the SEP IRA every day, you know what I mean? <laughs> and get
2: depressed. Yeah. Oh, that, right? that's, that's this guy right here. Yeah. 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 Oh, no. <laughs> He's looking at
1: the stock market You're all day. Right.
3: Cool. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting that you, that you said he, your dad is like watching the stock market, mm. but see, when I was a kid, my dad and all his friends, they didn't watch it. There, was, there were probably seven people in the whole of Liverpool who were watching the stock market. Now, everybody's involved in the stock right. market. Everybody's pension plan. Every teacher. Every road. Everybody's now invested in the yep. corporate world. We, we were sometimes not by choice. Right? You can't. Right. You, can't you can't choose avoid it, who, yeah. who invests your money, but or where they put it. You know. But that's always been the case. But now I think people have changed a little bit. You know, they're all thinking. You know, maybe I'm going. I remember my grandfather when he was sixty-five. It was like quit. He quit. Right. right. He went and sat down and did crossword puzzles and stuff like that. Yeah, sixty-five
2: never... back then was old.
3: Yeah. Yeah, but now, now, 75, they're out there rocking and rolling right. and doing the twist. Right. <laughs> You're right, though.
0: You're, more people now, like with the finance stuff, and then also like politics. I remember going yeah. up, no, you know, politics, don't talk about that. You know, that, that's something you don't bring up at
3: dinner. But now it's everywhere, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's, you know, I think it's Krishnamurti said, um, more information equals more confusion, and I argued at the time and saying, no, more information means less confusion. You know, the more you inform me about what is real, mm-hmm. the more I'll be feel more comfortable. But I think now people, we've all got too much information. And, and if the brain is like a hard drive that you throw stuff all, all day at and some of it sticks, there's a lot of stuff flying around right. my head that I'm trying not to let in.
2: Right. Right. So, so well, you don't want to let it in now, but what what about back then? I mean, you know, when you, you know, f- when you first started,
3: we were the first punk band. Really, we drove around in a van for a couple of years, and everybody played the same songs. Every band that we knew, you know, the Undertakers and the Beatles and the Mersey Beats and the Searchers and the Hollies. They all did the same kind of coasters, Mm -hmm. songs. And we decided that we would be different from all of that. So we'd get a name that was like a non-pop star name. We weren't going to be Billy Fury or or Elvis Partridge. We were going to be like Herman. No girl would ever scream the word Herman, (laughs) right? (laughs) You know, it just wouldn't wouldn't be. Or, Or Clarence. Clarence. So, so, we, <laughs> so we 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 chose this little sort of defi that we would do like really odd songs, and we used to open at the cavern Kevin with my boy lollipop, which made every guy in the room hate you. Right? <laughs> you know what? What is it? You know my boy lollipop. <laughs> you know, and they go, "What is this about?" But girls, <laughs> girls, girls liked it. Understood that was a funny idea. Right. And then we'd do Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. And I would tell this story, you know, I go to the girl's house and I knock on the door and, oh, no. And I'm going to tell her I love her and I want a But her mother answers the door. So I go, Mrs. Brown, you've got a lovely daughter. And we we and I would wear my school uniform for that. I'd go on stage in my school uniform with the short trousers, you know, English oh, and the boy. cap on, you know, a bit like ACDC, but without a guitar. How old and, were you at the time? 13, 14. Okay which gives you a bigger break than everybody else because all the other bands didn't think we were competition. Mm. You know, and there was a thing going on which I, I can't... The British invasion was a load of people who all knew each other because England, well, you know England, really? England is a very small country. You know, yes. it's like, the, like smaller than Iowa. So everybody knew everybody. Everybody knew where everyone was. The people, like the Beatles people, the roadie would say watch out for that guy at the Liverpool Locarno because he, he won't give you all the money. He'll say, you know, I'm not paying you because people were dancing and stuff like that. So there was like a, there was a common, th- we were all like a people in a trade union right. and we all looked after each other. Now I was the youngest one of all. There was Steve Winwood was in a band yeah. called uh, the Spencer Davis Group. And he was the only person on the road who was younger than me. And we both had the same thing happening, which was they would come to pick us up outside the school gates and take us off on the road. You know, we, for a long time, I (laughs) stayed in school, you know, against my will. And when I was 15, I thought I could leave school, but they changed the law, you had to be 16. So I just didn't go, just (laughs) never went to school. And you know, my dad was fine with it. You know, the only person that, that ever went to my school for any sporting event or school play or anything, nobody, my parents never did any of that. They never came to watch me play soccer. They never came to watch me play cricket. They never came to see me in the school play. They came to pick me up when I got expelled.
1: Oh, oh well. That's all <laughs> exactly. you need. yeah. A driver, driver. <laughs> <laughs> a driver.
3: <laughs> Would they come watch you perform? You when know, you were it performing? never really, they did after we made it, but at the beginning it was, right. very, it was very ugly. You know, um, I mean, mm. if you imagine the cavern, it, the cavern had a, An unusual thing that you'd you'd see these pictures of people who appeared to be smiling, you know, like this, and that was because there was condensation, (laughs) and the condensation there was a low ceiling over the stage, and people would sweat, and smoke, and drink Mm. beer. And, right. and there was a condensation and nicotine would drip onto your head during <laughs> during the second or third song. And slowly it would run in down your forehead into your eye, make you smile, make you smile. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there's loads of tapes of people there. You know, I sometimes go looking on YouTube to see The Undertakers and you can see Jackie Lomax, um, like... Teary-eyed, you know, oh no, here comes the nicotine drip. Right, it was a good PR uh, strategy. So so (laughs) parents were not welcoming things like that. And it's like a unique period because the government had got involved in entertaining young people because they thought, you know, after the war, you know, I'm talking like in the 50s, there was Mm -hmm. still a a massive amount of post-war energy around, like rationing and stuff like that. And the government had decided that kids, everybody's mom and dad worked. It was a period in the 1960 through 1964, everybody's mom and dad worked Mm -hmm. because you couldn't survive unless both people worked. Some moms didn't, but most of them. So the government wanted something for kids to do between 4 o'clock and 6.30 when their dads got home from work. And they set this this youth club thing where you needed a band. a A disc jockey They couldn't, you know, they had one turntable and then there'd be a break and he didn't have a microphone. So what they did was a band who played constantly. So we would do the Junior Cavern and we were the same age as the audience. Right. So really? we had an advantage over everybody else because oh aren't they mm. oh you know oh <laughs> shame they're not that good but they're you know yeah. <laughs> so they're trying hard you know what I mean, and we thought we were we thought we were rubbish we didn't know how good we really were how good the idea was that's what it was we, we, we didn't we didn't play better than anybody else but we had a better idea and we would do our grandparents' songs because they were every kid in the room was the same. We were the audience. I think that's probably the trick. We were the same age and we had the same feelings as the audience. So we would do like a, a Dion song, which was the Hilly. Like Dion was like the king of the Teddy boys. Right. Teddy boys was an English thing where people dressed up like Edwardian things and only played American rock and roll, which was Chuck Berry, Little Richard, bit of Sam Cooke, just American rock and roll. Little Richard, Sam Cooke, Chuck Berry. And, they would terrorize the neighborhoods and our parents were afraid that we would become Teddy boys. But if you we went and did like pop music, like my boy Lollipop, that would give the kids a break. But this whole generation of kids were being exposed to live music it had to be live, right. You know, disc jockeys didn't make it. I had a job as a disc jockey in a, in a restaurant when I was a kid and I had one t- turntable and no microphone. So all you did was play a record, flip it over quickly and then play it again. No, no, people would come and request songs and I had the biggest record collection in the world at the time, all wow. American songs. actually, i got my first gig in a band because I was a disc jockey and the guy, this bloke came over to me and he said, you, you're Peter Noon, aren't you? I go, I thought he was going to beat me up. <laughs> I said, yeah,
2: you don't have a temper, do you?
3: Well, I, I, this guy could have beat me up. So it. <laughs> this, this was a walk away from trouble. You're right. <laughs> you know, usually I go fed first into it, but the, <laughs> this one, you know, the preemptive strike has been, always been a popular theory of mine. If you're mm-hmm. going to take your glasses off, I'm going to hit you as you take your glasses off. <laughs> so he came up to me and he said, yeah, yeah. He said, do you know any of these songs? Because our singer, and I remember the guy, it was Malcolm Lightfoot, was the singer who hadn't shown up. I think he was leaving the band and he just answered, can you sing any of these songs? And I go, yeah, I know them. I know them all. Mm-hmm. And, and I got up and I sang and, and they invited me to be in the band. And they were all like 20. Right. They were all 20 years old and I was like 14. And they said, oh, 13 maybe. And I said, would you be in the, yeah, okay. And, you know, I quickly took control of it. You know, I'm I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. I quickly took control of the operation. You know, for a while there were like guitar solos and this lead singer has nothing to do during a guitar solo. So i get rid of their guitar solos Mm -hmm. and the instrumentals. Let's get some, you know, and I, was able to forge my dad's signature so i bought a van because if you had a van you had a big advantage over all the other people in bands who had their dad driving them in a car and the drum kit on a bike And, and you know so we got a van with a sliding door and the whole thing which i signed my dad's name and i was the I was the only sober person in the band because I was too young to drink so I would end up being the driver the drive, back from right. gigs. And we would do gigs all over England and we would sometimes we wouldn't get paid at all but we wanted to play. Right. It Practice. was a game. Right. right? It, the thing was we thought this is the greatest hobby I've ever this is much more fun than stamp collecting. <laughs> uh, girls look at you, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Cuz no girls okay. ever looked at me before I'd dress up in whatever I could get attention, you know. And we'd stand on one side of the room and they'd all stand there and they'd go, get away from, go, go get glossed, oh, tatty Ed!" And you know, okay, you know, if you've had long hair, you call tatty Ed. And, um, you know, I was suddenly in this band and we were working and we started to make money and we would, the more we made money, the more people wanted to be in the band. Mm-hmm. And, and as we were going along, people would say, uh, you're looking for a guitar player. I said, well, we've already got a good one. I'm better than him. Oh, competition! I said, well, much, yeah, yeah. How much? How much do you get? Well, like, I'm not in a band right now, but if I was in your band, I would just. We started to get. So Keith Hopwood joined Herman's Hermits. So Keith Hopwood is one of the one of the good players. He played the guitar on Mrs. Brown. He got a lovely daughter. Mm-hmm. He joined the band because we had more gigs than his band, <laughs> not because we were better. Right. <laughs> he, nobody ever thought to work. more yeah. money. More work, more money. And uh, a little
0: earlier, you said something that you said you got paid less because people danced. Can you explain that?
3: Yeah, yeah. There was a, there was a theory. It, it was one or two people in the business. So you know, like Bob Wooler who ran the Cavern. He liked Herman's Hermits. No, he liked the people in Herman's Hermits. Didn't like the music. He liked us. Mm-hmm. There's, that, there's a difference. So, so he would say, you know, I became suddenly, there was, I became the leader of the band who gets paid. You have to go into the office to get paid. And because I was a kid, people tried to take advantage of me. Right. So all the guys would say, don't let him take advantage of you. So you, you'd go in and you'd say, Show me i paying you for today? Well, I said, well, we did three shows. We did the lunchtime, we did the junior, and we did the nighttime one. So I think that's like 30 pounds. And he said, I'm gonna give you 22. I go, why 22? He said, well, people were dancing. If, if people dance, I could have just played records and that's free. Oh, <laughs> it's a weird thing, a yeah. way out, right? Yeah, but you know, once, once they realized that we were not chumps and we got a manager, a guy called Harvey Lisberg, who, who was a manager and he became the guy who went and got the money. So mm-hmm. then I was relieved of that. I could right. concentrate on, there's a bit of business that needs to happen before you get on stage and then you become this other person. And I created an, a character for right. myself that was this, you know, friendly, happy, go lucky. And I've got a lot of that in my nature, mm-hmm. but that's not who I am. I'm not hurt. I, I like to say Peter Noon is Herman is Peter Noon, but I think there's other things going on, you know?
2: So when, when um, you were getting experience, right, you were yeah. going, playing all these gigs, You're pl- you're getting your experience. And then the British invasion comes. Right, yeah. so when you came over to the states,
0: but uh, before that, so yeah. did you
3: play with a lot of those bands? Like before
0: right.
1: you came yeah. over,
3: yeah, we knew each other. You all knew it, each it's, other, right? It's, it's a strange thing. We all knew each other, and before we all made it, we kind of knew each other and kind of inspired each other. You know, when the Beatles got a hit record, we thought that was the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. You know, these people that we know, and we there were there were bands who didn't get hit records who were phenomenal bands and you, you know we figured that there must be some energy missing like is it the manager is it the label is it the promotion man is so we were kind of learning from our adult friends oh. how the business worked and you know you could ask the Beatles how much should we ask for mm-hmm. you know when we get a record deal what should we ask for you know they give us this piece of paper and we don't and they say it's so, a so would say well ask for 10 well we didn't know 10 what 10 was right 10 what he meant 10% right the guy said well what are you looking for 10 that was my answer 10 i didn't know 10 what and he goes oh not a chance we could give you 10 how about we we'll give you 2% of of retail 2% of 95% 90% and there's a so i'm thinking that's 1.8% that sounds good and <laughs> we got 2% and then i i said we got we only got two he said blimey that's double what we're getting. Oh, you're kidding. Is <laughs> 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 it 10 because it was like uh, so ludicrous. Right. So, so, you know, we we knew each other on a level of just being plumbers. We were all plumbers except we had guitars. We were all in this union of helping each other out, really, you know, nobody, there was no competition. Does that make sense, Britt, that that wasn't competitive? I know your business is 100% competitive. My business was that we needed to help each other out because we were all again, it really was us and them. The (laughs) labels were famously ripping people off. So we found our way because we knew all these people, we found our way to an independent record deal Mm. with an independent record producer Really accidental, that's what we wanted, but we accidentally landed on our feet and we got this guy called Mickey Most. Mickey Mose. And we would would make records on a Monday and they'd be in the store on Thursday because we didn't have anybody between us and the label. We didn't have an A&R man. Oh, well, you know, uh, I think you need to put some violins on Henry VIII or Mm. write a second verse for Henry VIII and bring it back tomorrow. We just put everything out and we would would make records of the moment, you know, we make you say, we need a record that goes on right after the news, you know, pound, boom, pound hits new low, low, boom, England knocked out in the first round of the World Cup soccer, <laughs> boom. And then woke up this morning feeling fine. Right, right. you
1: know?
3: <laughs> and we would make records like that. right? And, the, and it was so fabulous because it's a... No, let's put this, like Henry VIII, we had a record that was like number one in America by accident called Mrs. Brown, You Got a Lovely Daughter, which was a song from our stage show that had got recorded because we didn't have enough songs that other people hadn't recorded. Mm -hmm. So it got put we'll put it on side two, uh, track three, no one will ever hear it. No one will ever go that deep into your record, right? That's so crazy. we did it. And then it was a big hit. So we said, we've yeah. got to come up with another one. We've got to come up with another one. And we, we knew this song. Everybody in England knew I'm Henry VIII, I am. Every, every single person in England knew that song because their grandparents sang it. It was at every pub. You know, it was replaced by Delilah. My, 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 Delilah. <laughs> until then, it was Henry VIII right. and Any Old Iron. So we recorded Henry VIII and we didn't really know much about it. I, re- I remember that my grandfather, who was from, from Four Mile House in, in Ireland, around Christmas he would have a, a Roman peppermint. I remember he used to have one Roman peppermint and he'd get on the piano. I didn't play the piano, we would get on the piano oh, no. and <laughs> he would sing Henry VIII. And it was a bit like, I'm Henry VIII, I am... Henry VIII, I am, I am. That was the original tune. Mm-hmm. So we got in there and we sort of, like the guitar, Said, let's put a Chuck Berry kind of intro on it and, you know, play that. And um. it begat Henry VIII, mm-hmm. the, the version that we made. Uh, people don't understand that I think the record is the shortest ever record to get to number one. It's very short. Second verse, same as the first and the guitar solo and then another verse and then out, Right, right. right. However long the record is that's how long it took to record it. That's, that's crazy. You know we we said okay next right. one take. Yeah one take and one play. we played so that so the second verse same as the first was supposed to be sort of sotto voce you know it was like to be do the same thing again. Mm-hmm. Let's play that again. Only oh, yeah, I said, second verse, same as the first, meaning everybody should play the same thing, thinking that we could edit that out or we'd do it at least one more time without me saying that. But Mickey Mouse, ah, oh, it's great. Keep it like that. Mm-hmm. And at the end, there's a like a, yeah, because we played it all the way through and it was good. Yeah, yeah. it was a keeper. It was yeah. a keeper.
2: <laughs> and, and, but, but along with that, you had your own vocal style too, right? Uh, you you kind of stepped aside from just the original. Everybody style.
3: Yeah, you know, I think we—you had to be different. I mean, there was a there was a moment when we were playing in Liverpool and the northwest of England where the decision was, you know, are we going to be like Big Bill Brumsy <laughs> or Bobby V and Buddy Holly? Right. Well, so he said, yeah. well, let's let's go with Buddy Holly for now until you grow up and you can get a big Bill Bruinsy voice on you. <laughs> well, I don't know why I said big Bill Bruinsy, but, you know, one of those like screaming yeah. hawk, you know, <laughs> I wasn't going to ever be able to sing the blues. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what the blues were. I didn't even know what poor was. I thought we were rich when we were poor because there were people a lot poorer than us lived around the corner. Right. So we lived in this sort of dream world of not knowing how reality worked. So... My inspiration was always the Everly Brothers mm. and Buddy Holly mm. and, and those sort of pops. They were kind of country singers, you know, it's hard to really, Americans don't understand that in England, we didn't know country R&B. We didn't have charts like that. We had the Sound of Music, number one, and the Beatles, number two. Our mm. chart was everything. So my choice was to be this sort of pop singer rather than, a blues singer, Mm -hmm. you know, and I wasn't ever going to be able to play the guitar as good as Eric Clapton, so I put it down. In fact, I was in a band when I was the guitar player called the Cyclones, and they didn't fire me, but I wasn't really very good, and there was one really good player in the band, and he said to me the magic words, why don't you be our lead singer? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and I left, that was good time. I left, right? I left the band. I, I knew what that meant. Right. Uh, <laughs> An instrumental band with a lead singer. Uh, uh, <laughs>
0: well, so, music, music was made different back then too. I think everyone's used to iTunes now, but even back when you did it, you would make certain songs for England, the UK, right? Yeah.
3: And then also different songs for the U S maybe. Right. You know, we, we sort of developed that as we, as because what happened was we thought we were making records for England. But I think once Mrs. Brown was taken out of, the, out of context and made a, a single in America, we had to sort of turn, change course. And I think we, the only two records we made for America, and that was like Henry VIII and mm-hmm. Leaning on the Lamppost. And the Leaning on the Lamppost thing happened because we, we got signed to a three major motion picture deal from MGM, Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, who had seen the Beatles, they'd heard of the Beatles, and they thought that every band would have a help, a hard day's night, and um, those three movies in the band. Mm -hmm. And they wanted the soundtracks. So we show up in Culver City, MGM. We rented Cary Grant's house. Can you believe it? <laughs> Sweet. Who is was a really nice guy, Cary Grant's house. And we're now making a motion, major motion picture. And we have a limousine to take us to work in the morning at 5 a.m., right? And we, most of us aren- haven't got back until 4.30. So, but you got rid of the van, right? The <laughs> yeah, van. now we've got a limo. <laughs> and they take us in there, and we meet this really great guy called Arthur Lubin. And we're so excited because he's he's the director of the Three Stooges, which is our favorite mm-hmm. like American movie. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know that he'd also been doing Mr. Ed for about five years. So we get there and he said, you know, we got this scene in a space capsule and you and the manager are in this space capsule because the, the, the name of the spaceship is called Herman's Hermits. And we're sitting listening to this idea and we go, have we done acid, or has he done acid? He <laughs> he thinks he's, he's being creative. So the, the 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 girls in America have voted what they should call the new NASA. They're trying to get the young people involved in the space program, and American girls have voted to call the space capsule Herman's Hermits. Wow. So <laughs> off we go in the spaceship, and 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 he goes, "What would be a good song? Which good song have you got that would work?" In a space capsule, just you and the manager, and we're, going to, we're going to hang the hermits on wires and they're going to float around this spaceship. And I'm going, out of nowhere, I say, How about I'm leaning on a lamppost? <laughs> you know, I could have said, Here we are. You know, I could have said, You know, that one with the car driving in the car, we we'll just keep your snoopy eyes on the road ahead, something completely different from a spaceship scene. So I was leaning on a lamppost. And he said, All right. So he didn't, we, he didn't know. He didn't know that I was taking the piss, as right. they say in England. <laughs> <but you know. laughs> so we go into this Foley room. The Foley room is where you make sound things. You, right. the, the two coconuts for a giveaway, you know, the two coconuts. <laughs> so we go in there and we record this song. And we, next thing you know, we fly, the hermits are flying around on wires and we've recorded this song called I'm Lino on Alempos. So it was made for America in America. Right. And by, who, who wrote that? Oh, George Formby in 1930-something. He was, again, it's a song that our grandparents played. My my life was kind of unusual because I lived with my grandparents. My parents were away at university. They weren't working, they were at university. And I was living with my grandparents. And every time somebody died or there was a baptism or a funeral or a wedding, everybody would congregate in my grandparents' parlor and everyone had a musical instrument. My dad had a trombone, my uncle Lawrence had a trumpet. That's why I'm deaf. And, and my Auntie Mary played Fats Waller. And we would all go in this room and sing songs. So and I didn't have an instrument, so I was always the lead singer. And I remembered all the words to all the songs because I didn't have anything else going on in my world. I remembered all the words to those old, the future Mrs. Orkins and all those wonderful Irish songs that mm-hmm. they knew, you know, mountain, you know, all the stuff that we would do. Right. And and it was frequent. A lot of people died and a lot of people got married and a lot of people got christened and a lot of people got baptized. So at least once a week we'd be in that room and everybody played a musical instrument. Right. You know, my dad would get this trombone out and they'd put my Uncle Lawrence outside the room because the trumpet is too loud. Can't put it in the mix. And it was just this fantastic musical life. Right. The, the sad, happy, stoicism all had music to, to go with it. Right. And so, 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 so when we came to record a 1930 song, we were the only people in England who even did that. Not, not many people had come from this warm Irish, crazy family like me.
2: Wait, wait, did you have a big family? Was it? Uh, oh yeah, no, you did. Yes,
3: it, it was a big family, and everybody lived in the same neighbourhood. You know, you could you could walk or cycle to every single member of my family. The, my, one gra- I had one grandmother who was completely mad. She was from Ireland, and, and she was married to a Scottish guy who'd been a prisoner of war in Iraq in 1920 and lived. Wow. You, you know, you go, what were the British doing in Iraq in 1920? Well, right. They were there, and, and, and he was a prisoner of now. war. So they were odd people. You know, she was completely mad. I went to confession once, and, and I said, you know, Father, bless me, Father, I've been, I've been mean to my grandmother, You know, and and he goes, what do you you mean? I said, you know, when I see her walking down the street and I'm with my friends, I hide behind a car or I jump behind somebody's fence and hide from her. And he goes, why would you do that? I said, well, she's a little bit odd. She's a bit odd. You know, she wears a silver lame dress in the daytime and stiletto heels. And she goes, Peter, is that you, Peter? (laughs) Peter, come here. (laughs) And so I hide from her and he goes, is that Peter Noon? <laughs> the yeah. priest knew her. Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so so there was It's this small town. Okay. Yeah, it was a very small town, and and I think my other grandmother, the one that I lived with, she was dangerous. She was known to be the the person you wouldn't mess with, mm-hmm. or any of her family. You know, there's always one of those right. in Ireland, and and you know, you know, once somebody's house burnt down, and she didn't. Ever say it wasn't her? Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Sometimes it's better yeah. to just not say anything, right? You know, so, you know, once I remember once, like, she was like the oddest lady, you know, because I got beaten up by his kid and he was a lot older than me. I think he was probably 12 and I was like six. And she took me around to his house and she held his father by, by the throat. <laughs>
1: Oh,
3: um, <laughs> you got the kid to I come to the door. Wants to grab and she him like said, that. <laughs> "Yeah, right." She said, "Hit him as hard as you can in the face." <laughs> <laughs> I don't want
1: to. I don't want
3: to. no nanny, I don't want to hit him. She said, "Hit him as hard as you can in the face." So I gave him a bit of a whack, you know, like not a really hard one. And she said, "Right, okay, now, kick him in the ghoulies. <laughs> <laughs> What are the ghoulies, you know? (laughs) Six. But I gave it a good shot. I think I got them. She was trouble. She was trouble. That was good to have someone like that. And And that's where everybody congregated. So everybody knew we had this very close family You know, there's always a brother-in-law that gets in trouble at every wedding and every, there's always one of those, a drunk brother-in-law. And it was the perfect family and the perfect life to grow up to. And then they sent me away to school because I was getting naughtier and naughtier. Mm. And you go to school and then you meet other boys and then you find out some guys have got a stamp collection. Some girls like Brigitte Bardot more than they like the Beatles. You know what I mean? And there's like... I got I got through it all, and by the time I was in a band, I had a lot of musical information
2: and, and a good education too. I mean, a, a, of life.
3: Yeah, right? you know, I knew lots of I knew lots of how to behave, and you know, they were all nice people. You know, there was there was you know, there's not a lot of people went to jail in my <laughs> family.
2: Well, <laughs> to get and they are Irish. That's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I can say that I'm Irish.
0: You all know it. There is no I in team, but there is one in Indeed, and that's the hiring platform you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract, interview, and hire all in one place. Instead of spending multiple hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do all of it. We streamline hiring with powerful tools that find you matched candidates. And with Instant Match, over 80% of employers get quality candidates whose resume on Indeed matches their job description the moment they sponsor a job, according to Indeed Data US. Look, my favorite thing about Indeed is I'm not very good at all the gathering. I don't like to have to go around looking for the information on multiple sites from multiple sources. That's why I like Indeed. I just go to one spot. They have everything there for me that I need. They help me out with everything. I put it all together and boom, it's my one-stop shop. Join more than three million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your post at indeed.com slash Connors. This offer's only good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at indeed.com slash Connors. Just go to indeed.com slash Connors and support this show, our show, Advantage Connors, by saying you heard it here. Indeed.com slash Connors. Terms and conditions apply. Do you need to hire?
4: Learn more at thenewequation.com.
2: What was it like when you first left England?
3: You know, well, England was a a good place to start. As we grew as a band, we got off, Jerry and the Pacemakers offered us a gig with them, which Mm. was like, I think now you would call it shelves. We were on the bottom shelf. And on the next shelf was this band called Jerry and the Pacemakers because they had a hit record and they were nice guys and they liked us and they knew we weren't competition. Mm. So they took us on a tour and I remember the tour was Jerry and the Pacemakers, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas who hadn't had a record yet. And then my band called Pete Novak and the Heartbeats. So we were sort of in this growth period where bit by bit, we became more accepted by the next level, Mm -hmm. And then we started to get the same money as those people. And then we we had aspirations to get, and then Dusty Springfield Mm, took us on a tour and, and she was top level. She was like a real diva. I mean, you know, now everybody's a bloody diva. Oh, she's a diva. You know, she's not. Dusty Springfield was a diva. She was a phenomenal singer, a phenomenal, and a star. Mm -hmm. And she took us on a tour and we had to behave. She let us go on her bus and we learned how to behave. That set us up for going to America. When we got to America, we, we found ourselves on a bus. Our first tour was a bus tour, and it was with Little Anthony and the Imperials, yes. Billy Stewart, Round Robin, I Continue to Turn of the Icats, and direct from England, Herman's Hermits. It spelt right. So, we got on this bus and we, we had no idea what was going on in America. We had nothing, we had not a clue about anything political because we avoided it. Mm-hmm. What year did you come over first? 64. 64. And, of course, this bus took us into Macon, Georgia, and we found out very quickly. I was the smallest person on the bus, and the Shangri-Las were on the bus as well, and the reparator and the Delta. This was a full bus, 42 people, wow. 42 seat Greyhound bus, the Dick Clark caravan of stars. And I became friends with Billy Stewart and he was like a drummer played on my. He's like a chess records guy. He had the most information of anybody that I'd ever met in my life. He'd had a real life, Billy Stewart. So I got to sit next to him. He weighed 380 pounds and I weighed about a hundred. So I would sit on seven eighths of the seat on the bus because I always got on last because I was the promotion man for the whole tour. So I got on the bus last and I lived on this bus with these incredibly great people and amazing talent people, amazing talent. And we started off being the opening act. And as the tour progressed, we had three records got in the top 20 Mm. and we became the headliners. Mm. But we were headlining in the cities that they were supposed to be the headliners in, like Macon, Georgia, you know, and you'd... You can't go out after Little Anthony Imperials in Macon, Georgia, 100% black audience, and sing Mrs. Brown, you got a lovely daughter. Right. But we did. Yep. And they admired us for we, Wow, they got chutzpah, I think they called it at the time. So we were on this tour with all these people. And, and the time we were having a great education because in England, we didn't have any of this stuff going on, it didn't exist. So we would, we would always stop at Howard Johnson's. And I say, why do we always stop? And we, the, there was, Howard Johnson's sure. was, a, was a chain mm-hmm. right. of restaurants. And we learned to eat from those guys. Whatever they, we didn't know anything. We would right. sit down a little and think, <laughs> the, there's the dog. <laughs> it's okay, keep recording. Everyone knows we're here now. Of course. So, so, so we would stop at Howard Johnson's and eat chicken pot pie because that's what they ordered. Mm-hmm. And then we found out that we ate at Howard Johnson's right. because they were allowed to eat at the counter. And we didn't, we got angry. The, the, uh, there were places that, you know. Uh, forget we it's the 60s, right? Yeah. Yeah, forget that. We didn't know that that, that even happened because of that we became closer to them than the other people on on the bus because we knew about that. I don't know. It's something about English people and uh, with Irish blood who know what that feels like. Right. So we, we were, and we'd been treated badly in England because we had long hair, you know, like the most famous thing was that people would shout to us, uh, are you a boy or a girl? And I think I told you, I, I unscrewed the legs off my mother's, coffee table and we'd put them up our sleeves when we'd go into a transport cafe in England. And I, and Jack Bruce, who was in cream later on, was in another mm-hmm. band. And he tells me a story. He remembers me going into this place and somebody said something and I explained to the other people in the band in front of him. Now you've got to hit them first with this. <laughs> you've got to hit them before they, and, and the guy had said, why do I have to hit him first? I said because if you don't hit him first, he'll get the double off. He was called a double. Right. He'll get it off you and he'll hit me with it. So you better hit him before he hits me.
2: Give him a good one, right?
3: (laughs) Just show the power. So this was this band. And of course, that made us, of course, more attractive to other English bands that we could take care of ourselves. Like in Tom Jones' book, he he said, I said, Tom, why did you do that to me, Tom? You've got two fights, the only two fights I ever won. You talk about in your book as if I'm some sort of hard man. (laughs) Both of them. It was was the preemptive strike. You know, I hit a guy with a the chair in the pub, but he wasn't looking at me when I hit him.
2: <laughs> So what's better? Did he tell you about the myth or the legend? Either, uh...
3: I didn't I didn't want didn't anybody want to out. think, you know, because what happens if people think you're tough? They go, right. oh, let's see how tough you really are. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So,
2: so I, I gotta know when you first came over here with the with the British invasion, and I mean we we had some big stars over here at the time, Roy yeah. Orbison, right? Yeah. And, And and, uh, Little Richard, a lot of great acts. And then uh, the British Invasion, what was the attraction?
3: I think we were more enthusiastic. I think that's quite simple. I think we were just more enthusiastic. It got a bit romantic, show business. You know, this pullover that you gave to me, you know, all that kind of high school romance. And we weren't like that. You know, we were more cheeky. Mm. You know, the Beatles... Thing was cheeky. They, they were great. Comedic. Think about the Beatles. They were great-looking guys. Not until they made it, right? They were pretty normal-looking guys until they became stars. But as they got started, all the teeth straightened out, and their hair got longer, and you know their eyebrows got plucked, and, and you know so everything. <laughs> everything suddenly changes. You know, you know, the, it all changed. And, and you know, I, I hate to say this because it's it's like it sounds detrimental, but. You know, Freddie and the Dreamers were more attractive than some of those pop singers in America, just because they were fun. And girls, until recently, girls preferred fun guys than the muscle guys. Now, muscles had a bit of a comeback, but you know, in in English comics, they'd have like a Charles Atlas thing. There was this guy called Charles Atlas, lifting weights Mm -hmm. and everything. Nobody in a band ever lifted any weights. Right. You know, the, they lifted amps. Right. <laughs> or you know, no uh, beers. Uh, exactly. Beer, <laughs> beers. Yeah, you know, and there was that drinking thing as well, which, which we brought to America with us because the quantities that people could drink was quite unusual. You know, we all thought that the drinking thing was a competition. It was a, it was a competitive sport, you know, <laughs> and we all wanted to win. Right. And you would see those British invasion people getting off the plane, and you go, they're legless. <laughs> They're legless, they would get off the plane, like, oh my goodness, you know, like there were 100,000 girls seeing these people all wide-eyed and legless uh, uh, getting off the plane. Right. But they were attractive right. because they, were norm- they would look normal. They didn't spirit up, there was no hair glue. Right, you know, none of that bouffant thing going on. They were a bit dishevelled and cheeky, and, and and we were spoiled because the Beatles always had a fun line, and everybody expected every other British person to be funny and handsome and and gregarious. Yes, everybody expected that. So, I mean, Herman and so we instantly fell into the the plan because mm-hmm. we were all already a bit punk. Right, you know, we were already. Making fun of everybody, N- not unkindly, no. like you know, we we would like call Ed Sullivan Mister Ed and stuff like that to me, <laughs> because that was funny. But it wasn't funny to him, right? But well, what
2: was it like being on his on his show?
3: Every part of that was great because he liked us. You see, and and, and we thought he was the biggest
2: Herbans, hermits or, or the, the British invasion or both.
3: He, he didn't like all of the people in the room. He liked the Dave Clark five. He liked the Beatles because they drew a crowd mm-hmm. and then he liked Herman's hermits because we were gentle. We were more gentlemen than the rest of He didn't like the stones because he didn't know that they were only pretending, you know, he ah. thought that they were on un, unpleasant people. So, we we got on great with everybody like that. Like I uh, and I, know I met you when when we did the Dean Martin show, and mm. and we did the Danny Kaye show, and they all all those people always invited us back to their houses because they believed the 16 magazine theory that we were the boys next door. Wow, they believed it. Yeah, and and, and we kind of were, except that we had this sort of the boy next door had an Irish grandmother who was a bit <laughs> crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so. We fit into the plan for Herman's Hermits, which we didn't know, we didn't create the plan that, you know, Andrew Oldham had created, Andrew Oldham was the Stones manager and he was also involved with Herman's Hermits and he'd created this sort of um, image, an image. Yeah. Yeah. That the, we were the opposite of the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones was like, lock up your grant, lock up your children and Herman's Hermits let your children date them. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just, just, the smile to your face. <laughs> just the girls. <laughs> just the girls. Yeah. And, uh, and um, we liked that, you know, it was good. And, and and we knew, we knew the stones and we knew the plot and we fell perfectly into the plan because we were actually nice guys. You know, we, we could, we could be taken to dinner and use a knife and fork. Once, once it was like, there was this guy who, Sir Joseph Lockwood, is this before we came to America, but there was this echo, Sir Joseph Lockwood, who was the chairman of EMI, which was not just a record company, it was an electric music industry. And he only ever invited two people to lunch, and it was me and Paul McCartney. And I said to somebody like Andrew Oldham, why, how come he only invites me and Paul McCartney to lunch? And Andrew said, you're the only people he knows who can eat with a knife and fork. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because he must have imagined that all those people, yeah. like that Brian Jones, who was a very well-educated guy, couldn't eat properly and not finish off the wine before the dessert came. You know what I mean? But, but was that the reputation that a lot of the bands wanted, though? Yeah, everybody everybody wanted to be in the Stones because that was was attractive to girls, remember? It wasn't necessarily the music, but the girls were attractive to the Rolling Stones Mm -hmm. because they were the bad boys. Suddenly, nobody wanted the Pat Boone image. Right. You know, I mean, like sometimes when people would ask me then in those days, I said, you know, yeah, I'm stuck with this, you know, and I'll probably go to heaven with Pat Boone and the Partridge family (laughs) and... Where I really like to go is with the Stones and Jimi Hendrix, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> you know, down there, <laughs> yeah. you know, making toast.
2: But, yeah. but your but your image when you came over before we sat down here. I mean, you had a great line that uh, that it's it's fair season, uh, state fair oh, yeah, season. Yeah. The way yeah. you get in, you don't like to drive a car in, and but but as you walk in every 70 year old lady thinks that they,
3: they need a moment with me. And then they want to tell me that, you know, I met you at the state fair. I met you at the steel pier in 1965. And I always say this, I remember you. Yeah. You're the one who pushed the horse in the water. I have to have a line with everybody. So it's, I wouldn't like to use the word unpleasant, but it isn't a a good feeling to not be able to be invisible. Right. And I'm sure you know what I'm talking about that I remember the two only two times in my life that I felt invisible and I can, I can be invisible at a state fair. You know, if i if I just wear a hat, if you see my face with a hat on, you go, ah, bless his <laughs> heart. You know? So in my life, I've been invisible two times. Once when I was standing in a, in a, in a room with, with John Lennon, at, at the height of the Beatles thing, I got in an elevator, the same elevator as John Lennon. And when the elevator opened door opened, in the nightclub, people thought I was with him. And they sat us at a table, me and Terry Doran and John Lennon. And for the whole evening, I was invisible. Not one single person in that nightclub looked at me. Mm. They were only looking at him all the time because he was an icon. So, and another time was I went with Elvis Presley and we went in the dressing room to meet another star who's also not around anymore. And I walked in and everybody in the room, in the dressing room, just gave, it was only Elvis. And I was standing there as if I did not, I truly felt invisible because not, not one person acknowledged my existence. Strangely, I felt really good about that. This is really good. This is the first time I've ever not been visible. I'm the invisible man and I can just watch how people behave. Right. And I like that. I right. still like that. I, like, I get on the plane and I look at people and I wonder what they're doing. And, you know, Elvis Presley never got on a plane and sat next to somebody he doesn't know. Right. Yeah. He didn't know that feeling. So, right, exactly. So it's state fair season and I'm doing the state fair like at one a week and, and they're all great fun. And it's a great audience because it's grandmas, grandchildren, children, and sometimes great-grandchildren. Right because you can take them to a fair, it's still kind of a safe place. Think about this, 1964, 60,000 mums and dads dropped their children off, their 13-year-old daughters, mm. at a stadium and said, we'll pick you up at 9 o'clock. That's crazy, right? Well, it doesn't happen anymore. Well, but at a state fair, you get this general feeling of like, the music is the event, not safety. Mm-hmm. You know now most people go to a place I'm not going there because it's not safe, now too many people yeah, and no, no parking people, right all those reasons' it's fair people are having fun it's a it's fun. the whole thing is fun you know there's you eat food that you would never eat, they only got it at the fair. Where else could you get a pork chop on a stick
2: right yeah
3: right yeah, so exactly so everybody's having fun and it and it creates this great energy, and I get to interact with an audience. I like to interact from the stage rather than one on one. And it's a great great feeling, you know, to be still, you know, some of these records are 60 years I'll, old.
2: I was just going to say the loyalty, <laughs> you know, I
3: mean you you
2: say, you know, walking through that that they all want a moment with you, but but they've been with you. Yeah. You know, since they were kids also and and that that's got to be you know, great for your heart, though, Peter. I mean, Oh, you know, every,
3: every, every day I'm grateful. Yeah. That I wake up every morning, woke up this morning feeling fine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really, you know, I look out the window, look where we lived. Right. You know, come on. We have, you have to earn it, but thank right. you. Uh, so I, what I found over the years is that most people didn't buy the record in the audience, but there used to be a thing called radio where people would hear music that they didn't even know, mm. they didn't want to buy it. 60 billion people have heard the, I'm Henry VIII, I am. Right. Only 6 million bought it, but 60 billion people will sing along with it. Right. Amazing. And I look in the audience and I know that everybody in the audience didn't, didn't sing, didn't buy the records. But I see lots of people singing the words, the songs. And I do songs that aren't mine and I see that they don't sing along quite so well.
2: I've seen you uh, and and uh, right here in Santa Barbara and... and you know, sitting there, and I mean, I, you know, I I look at you up there, and and let, let's face it, I mean, time passes. Yeah. You know, you know, we're we're not what we you know as young as we used to be. Yeah. But the the one thing that I looked at uh as you as, as, as and your performance was number number one, your your energy, your your sincerity, your your passion, and and true love for what you do. I mean, your attitude just flew out into the crowd. Yeah. You know, for me, I know every word to every song, you've, you know. And, right. And because that's my era. I'm old school. I love it. Yeah. You know, yeah. You, you, you can chastise me for being old school, but that's just the way I am. And I and, am too. And, but, and so, I mean, your passion and the way you go about, I mean, it, it was an amazing evening.
3: I got, I got lucky because the songs have lived on well You know, they still mean something. You see, every song that I recorded means something to me. Right. And I take that on stage. When I I sing, woke up this morning feeling fine, last night I met a new girl, I'm 16 again, and I'm in the recording studio with 16-year-old boys on stage. Right. I'm I'm able to, it's Stanislavski's stuff, I'm able to be the person that I was then, and and that energizes me. But i c I'm sometimes seventeen on stage. I mean my body is quite a lot older than that, but my brain and and you know another thing, if you if you look at the people who've lasted, like uh Mick Jagger and Paul McCartney and me and a couple of the and Eric, they're athletes. If you started out in a band and didn't understand that you need to be an athlete if Mm. you want to keep continuing to do this and things will take longer to repair, you know, you'll be able to jump around on stage. But if you hurt yourself, it will take more than a week to get fit again. But we all, those three people that I said knew when they were teenagers, that if you wanted to do this for a long time, like be an entertainer and keep going and keep going, you need to be an athlete. Um, and I figured that out when I was like watching those people on that bus when I was 17, 16, 17, those people like uh, people who weren't healthy. Right. People who were not healthy. You knew, you, I didn't, I didn't think that they were going to die but I knew they wouldn't be able to perform. And there's a difference, you know, you see Frankie Valley out there. Frankie Valley's in his eighties. Yeah. And I go, I'm going I've got another ten years. Right, exactly. You, you yeah. know, Hockey and I do that. that. But I better get fit. Right. I'm not fit enough to be around like Frankie Valley. He's skinny, he's a hundred and ten pound weakling, but he's fit. Right. He's an athlete. And Mick, look at Mick Jagger. When I, mean, I saw Mick Jagger at a party, I'm, I'm fascinated by his arrogance, <laughs> the most attractive arrogance that you could imagine. Mm-hmm. He stands there and, and, and he has this arrogance that you can see what he's thinking is if anybody comes over here, try to take a selfie with me, God will strike them down dead with a <laughs> bolt of lightning. <laughs> you can see that that's. Yeah. You know, people don't, people, right. Oh, we don't want to bother him. He wants to be on his own. You know what I mean? So, and that he's a real athlete. Right. I mean, you watch a show from him, you go, I'll never be that fit. 17 year old boys go, I passed hot work now. Yeah. <laughs> I, was,
0: <laughs> I saw an interview with him when he was, you know, in his twenties. And the guy asked him, you know, can you see yourself doing this in your sixties? You know, kind of like joking. And Mick just said, uh, you know, yeah, of course. He said, really, you can see yourself out here with a cane, you know? And you know, you're in your 60s cane. He's out here in his 80s, you know, running yeah. around, jumping all over. You know, yeah. he doesn't need a cane. He's kept himself in pretty good
3: shape. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you have to, you know, and all the theme that all this dangerous behavior was going on backstage, that had a limited life, that that was a very short period in their lives, and then they mm-hmm. figured it out. Right. You know, everybody gets a wake-up call sometimes, you only get, to get sick once, be really sick once to go. I don't like that feeling. Right. I don't like that feeling. And then you say, what do I need to do? I think I told you like, I don't want to know the cure. I want to know the cause. If yeah. something goes wrong with me, I want to know what, what I did to do that. Right. And, and then, you know, cause there's lots of cures for things and everyone's got a different one, but, they figured it out. And Paul McCartney, I think he's a wake and bake kind of guy, but he's not a big boozer. Mm-hmm. And there's different stuff going on and he's fit. Mm-hmm. And he's he's kept his voice fit, you know, and, and I bet you, I don't know, I haven't heard it happening, but I bet you that uh, Mick Jagger does warm-ups before he goes on stage, vocal warm-ups, as well as, like, stretching and all that stuff that we're supposed to do, you know. Mm-hmm. If you want to run around on the stage, you need to stretch a little bit before. You... And I bet he's going, me, me, ma, mo, mo, kiddly, 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 kiddly. me, me, ma, mo, mo, getting his voice because he sings his, his ass off. Right. Well, he doesn't have an ass, but he sings everything <laughs> else off. But, but, you know, he sings, like, he sings now better than when he was 18, how can that be? That's right. crazy. Because if you train and train and train and train that unit, you can probably get better at it. And then one day just falls off the edge of a cliff and you go, you know, I think Frankie Valley said, if you can't sing anymore, you better stop. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You can sing. I mean, I went to see Frankie Valley. Took me on the stage, I was shaking with like anxiety. Right. Brought me up on the stage. I hope he's not going to ask me to sing. No, he just introduced me to the audience. He'd he go, Sherry, Sherry, babe. I, I couldn't sing that when I was 11. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Did you, uh, do you think Jagger or whoever ever thought that, say, listen, I got to take care of this now because you never know when this is going to end? Or uh, when, you get, when you get into it, you say, shit, I got a good thing here. I'm, I'm, it's going to last for you know as as long as I wanted to.
3: No, I I did all the abuse that w- that my body could manage, and and one day I had a wake up call. and I said, you know, I need to be more like Mick and and Paul than Jack Bruce mm-hmm. and Ginger Baker, who are not around anymore. And you know, I used to go out drinking with Richard Harris, and I would win. <laughs> I would win. That's and you know i score to keep. Too. Yeah. Yeah, he was a tough guy, you yeah. know, and he quit a long time before me. But you know, we we did all the abuse that young men are typically able to handle. That now I wouldn't be able to handle even one. So you know, do the kids today still face that that same kind of problem? Like like you? Yeah, did that I'm thing? sure. I'm sure. I'm sure it's a given that you know, if you're gonna be in the music business, you're gonna have to heap some abuse on you. You know, I mean, just. They won't let you in the door unless you're a bit for reputation. Yeah, you know the nice clean things never been popular. Mm. So you know, Herman summits were, were were nice clean, pretending to be nice clean, but we were kind of a little bit drinking too much and messing around too much. You know, I mean, it's that when I say, you know, if the bus left at four thirty at five a.m., we'd probably get back to the hotel at four thirty.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, we were out. We were out every night. Not all of us, but. There was an element in the band that needed to do all that riotous stuff.
2: You don't want to miss that though. Well, I'm glad I didn't
3: miss it because by the time I was 21, I'd done everything that you could possibly do to a 21-year-old body. And I go, you know, I got married and I settled down and I moved to the, you know, and I left all that behind. Mm -hmm. You know, I lived in a safe place. People used to hide all their drugs in my apartment because I was (laughs) Herman. The cops would never think to raid my house.
2: Interesting. Interesting.
3: You know, and so all my friends who were into bad behavior, they had a safe place to come and hide their stuff. So I was, I was Herman, and Herman had this reputation. And, and the, the, best thing, the best thing about that reputation was that my parents believed it. They believed the <laughs> newspapers. because my parents were normal people. They were well-educated, but they were normal. And when it said in the newspaper, happiest millionaire Herman... They believed I had a million pounds. And I had to explain to them, no, 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 no. no. The million pounds was given to the group. There are five people in the group and there's a manager and an agent. And I'll be lucky if I've got a hundred grand.
2: Right. Taxes. Which was a lot of money. Yeah.
3: Before tax. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And taxes in those days were 85%, 89%. Oh my gosh. I couldn't buy a car with what I got left from the million pounds.
0: A little while ago, I had the idea that I wanted to sell some tennis rackets. Got them lying around the house. I need to get rid of them. I had no idea where to get started. That's why I'm so glad that I found Shopify. If you could trade a bench warmer for the goat, you'd do it, right? Get your business a game-changing pickup by choosing the commerce platform with the internet's best converting checkout. That's Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool you'll need to start, run, and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling satin sheets from Shopify's in-person POS system or offering organic olive oil on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. Selling signed sneakers or official outfielder's outfits or even a tennis racket. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify is the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn those browsers into buyers. What I love about Shopify is that it has an audience already built in. Everybody already knows to go to Shopify to find all the stuff that they're looking for. So it does the dirty work for me. It gathers all the people who might be interested in my tennis racket or whatever I'm selling, and it has them all in one spot, ready for them to bid on my goods. Sign up for the $1 per month trial period at shopify.com conners Connors, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com conners Connors to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com conners Connors.
2: Can you ever think, see yourself doing something different, or ever doing anything different?
3: I'm never going to do anything different. I tried lots of different things. No, you no, know, I mean,
2: starting back then, I mean,
3: then. You know, I had a stamp book, and <laughs> I had a stamp book, and and I looked at the philatelists' friends, and I looked at the people who had the record collections, and I thought, I'm going to dump this stamp book, and I'm going to listen to, I'm going to make music my I'd get a job in the music business. I'd mm. be a disc jockey or da, 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 da And I always enjoyed music. And and that included a Broadway musical, you know, things that I wanted to do were all then. Mm -hmm. Uh, replacing the stamp book with one day I'd like to do a Broadway musical. I'd like to sing live on the television. I'd like to hear myself on the radio as one of my songs on the radio. Uh, In fact, the greatest feeling I ever had, you know, apart from the birth of a child was hearing I'm into something good on the radio in August the 7th, 1964, Mm. at 6 p.m. came on the radio. Everybody in the band gasped with this like orgasmic pleasure of, Here, all we ever wanted as a band was to get money for playing and to hear ourselves on the radio. Because when you hear yourself on the radio, you're with Roy Orbison and Del Shannon and Elvis Presley and Little Richard and Chuck Berry. You're in the same room again.
2: Is there somebody that you would have liked to have met that you didn't?
3: I think Harry Truman. Lots lots of kind of strange people. Winston Churchill, you know, mostly people that I admired for being gutsy and ballsy you know what i mean there's Mm -hmm. there's that you know all all the people that i wanted to meet in in the music business i did meet i made a point of meeting elvis presley i made i knew the beatles that wasn't important Mm -hmm. i wanted to meet sam cook i couldn't because he died and you know most of the people that i wanted to meet i made a point of finding them and meeting them you know i wanted to meet dean martin he invited me on his tv show I just got lucky, you know, and, and I wanted to meet Elvis Presley and, I'm, and I worked it. I met Colonel Parker and I set up a thing. I want to interview him. And, and I, all, all right from the very beginning, you know, from in my grandmother's house in the parlor, singing Fill the Fluters Ball, she took me to the local swimming baths. And in those days, the swimming baths were for people who didn't have a bath. It was mm. a bathhouse, people who didn't... We had a bathtub, so we were rich. But she took me there and I sang Fill the Fluter's Ball. And it was with the toot of the flute and the twiddle of the fiddle hopping in the middle like a heron on the griddle up, down, hands around, the to the wall. Oh, hadn't we the gaiety, you fill the fluter's ball? And I sang it with an Irish accent because that's how I'd learnt it. And I did all the moves. I did the toot of the flute and the twiddle of the fiddle-o, and I, and I hopped in the middle like right. a heron on the griddle-o. And the audience applauded, and I was probably five. And I go, this is great. How do I get more of this? More of this. So, you know, I'd won something. You know, I'd I'd learned the whole song Mm -hmm. and all the steps, and I'd presented it, and it made my grandmother happy. And there you go.
2: You've talked about your grandma a lot. I was very close to my grandma, and and, uh, you're a grandpa. And and Mirai, your wife of...
3: Fifty... Fifty-five years. Fifty-five years. Yeah.
2: Now a grandma. Yeah. Uh, f- uh, with we your daughter love Natalie.
3: Every minute. It's the most amazing, amazing feeling. It's like you have a reason to be 88 now. You know what I mean? Hmm. You have a reason to be 98 if you can make it, you know, high school and graduation and all that. All that stuff starts to show up because before, you know, I was going... You know, I've got Dr. Kevorkian's phone number, if it all goes wrong, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, I got to get it. And now suddenly you've got like that. Don't <laughs> be using that.
3: <laughs> but, you know, that's a, a saying. But, you know, now I've extended my horizon that much more. You know, mm-hmm. I want to see this little guy grow up and I, now I'm interested in uh, the climate. And before I'm going, you know, I'm, by the time all this heats up, if it's going to heat up, if any of that's true... I'll be 99, I'll be in Casa de Rinda, you know, like watching mm. fishing or something right. in a room with no water. Uh,
2: I, I can't see you ever doing that, Peter, because, <laughs> because as I said, I, I see you, uh, you know, hiking and walking and, and, you know, staying in shape. It's been, you know, a big part of your life, big part of my life also. And You, you kind of lose a little bit of, uh, of feeling. If I don't do it for a day, I feel guilty. Uh, you know, because I, I know you're, you're a little bit older than I, but, uh, but still, I mean...
3: Quite, quite I, a lot, really. I'm 75. But listen, you've got... I like I, it here. Yeah, I like it on the planet. And I think I've got a yeah. lot of reasons to stick around for a long time. And, and you know, people say, What's the, how come you're still doing it? And I said, I think I just outlived the competition. And now I'm afraid that I might outlive my audience. But... <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. I, I,
2: you know, that, and and that's what I wanted to say a little bit earlier. Your legacy, you know, has just been, been passed down. You know, from- yeah. Now their grandmothers that uh, that that you say they're seventy, or, you know that's a grandmother's age, and then their daughter now their now their daughter exactly daughter well, and, and, I, and that and, and the longevity of you and, and is is when I saw you that's one thing that went through my mind is is that man I mean you've been around since the sixties yeah and and. Wow, what a feeling that's got to be.
3: Well, you know, it's 55, it's 60 years since the first record was out. Been in bands for 63 years. And, you know, the the songs are safe. Mm. You can take anybody to a Herman's Hermit song. Right. And you, you're not going to hear anything bad about anybody. They're, so, they're romantic songs from a time the people wish existed now where you could have a right. date with a girl and, and go for a, go to the cinema and hold hands and, you know, drive in a car in the countryside. It's, it's, all that has gone. So whatever it is, it's a big attraction to every age group now. You know, you see, the, the, you can bring your grandchildren right. and they're not going to hear something that they shouldn't hear. If, and that's always been the case for Herman's Hermes. It's always been the case, you know, that we didn't have an Altamont, we didn't have any of that thing in our life. We've always been kind of clean cut and romantic.
2: If you right now could uh, snap your fingers and, and say that can transform into this time, or could that help this time, the, the music of your day, and and I mean the music has changed so much, uh, and but you know you said it's it's lasted so long. I mean, if if that could that help the, the times that we're at right now? I don't want to get political, but I'm no, I'm just no. Saying, yeah, I, I, I understand. Wise? I attitude. understand
3: the question exactly, but but it's. I, I have a feeling that that kind of behavior may be cyclical. You know, the Roaring Twenties was very attractive in the thirties, and and then, and I think what is going on right now. I think the music business has been hijacked by angry people, and in cyclical, people will lose that angry thing and can't buy me love will come back. That kind of Beatles help fun kind of music will come back. I think it's sneaking in. You and me probably are not hearing it, but you've got to think that 13 year old girls don't want to spend their life buying a makeup counter. Do you know mm, what I mean? Like right. the fifties, they, they, they don't want to do it. The guys don't want to be like Charles Atlas. They're probably, romance is is, is a wonderful thing, you know. Right. And if we lost that, we've lost that, haven't we? It'll come, it'll cyclical. I think, you know, my parents, you know, my parents met on a double date. They went, my mom went out with this guy called Hugh Gibb, and my dad went out with a girl called Barbara, and they exchanged girlfriends. And Hugh Gibb married Barbara, and my dad married Joan. Mm-hmm. And Hugh Gibb is the Bee Gees' dad. Amazing. She, yeah, so they, we know the Bee Gees because they were incredibly romantic musicians. Think mm, about how mm-hmm. beautiful the Bee Gees songs are. We saw the we saw Barry Gibb at the same yes, concert, indeed. and every songs "How do you get too much heaven?" You know, <sighs> I mean, amazingly romantic, beautiful songs. That's got to come back again, right? Huh, hit me with you, but that's gone. Young people will want to have a Barry Gibb type of song to sing to. them. You know, my my sister listened to "It's My Party" by uh, by Leslie Gore. "It's My Party" and I cried. That meant something to her. Right. Leslie Gore sang words. Well, you know, if you, if you're young now and you listen to the radio, there's nothing that represents you. Right. Amazing. There's nothing that represents your feelings. And all songs, when I was a kid, I understood, you know, I'm the type of guy who likes to roam around. I'm never in one place. I roam from town to town. We knew what that was. And Elvis Presley, I'm all shook up. We knew what that meant. No, I think you can listen to the radio now, and if it's, I got the hunger. I don't know if that's got any appeal to... Some girls maybe want to be that person. Mm. I don't know. Then None of the words... Mean anything to a thirteen-year-old girl, and thirteen-year-old girls were always the key to the music business,
2: right? The feeling of, of uh, the music now and the way you get it. Yeah, a lot of the bands are back on tour. They, you know, yeah, they, they stream. They. Uh, I mean, I'm. I do not know how to do all that, but but uh, but you know, traveling and playing live seems to be seems to be the thing now. Big
3: attraction, yeah, because people want to go out again. You know, they, they, they've had enough of watching things on YouTube and you go, you, you can go, you can watch 500 YouTubes of the Rolling Stones, but there's nothing like, nothing like going and seeing them live. Right. It's a completely different feeling.
1: Yeah, the energy. And there you
3: go. And the Beach Boys, you go and see the Beach Boys, everybody in the audience, no matter what age they are, know all the words. They don't, they're not very good at the singing because the Beach Boys are really good singers and the <laughs> audience usually aren't. <laughs> so, but everybody knows those songs and young people and old people alike go to those concerts and they join in. And if you go and see any of the modern bands that people are joining into them as well, but only to the songs that mean something to the audience. Right. And and think about it. Just, just, this is encapsulating this whole conversation. The Beatles replaced big bands. They got everything that they needed for a show including all the type of entertainment that they needed without having three girl singers, a dancer, no fireworks. They got everything that they needed in a van, right? A van. So they downsized the music business from these massive productions to the thing. And it got bigger and bigger and bigger every year until Nirvana came along with the three piece and replaced everything thing. And bit by bit is grown back into now. People ask me, you don't have any fireworks. No, we don't have any fireworks, and we don't have any girls on stage dancing. Thank you. Right. We just got songs, right? And Bit very limited equipment, and Bit we managed it
2: a lifetime.
3: Yeah, and that'll that'll come back again. There'll be another Sex Pistols, Nirvana, or something that'll come out and wipe the floor with all those people. People go, "Well, we do we don't want to see girls dancing and fireworks going off. We like to sit and listen to the songs and join in, and you know what I mean." because now it's exploded. I mean, you see trucks. I, right. I do concerts at state fairs and I see 14 trucks for, for pop bands. Crazy. Right. You know, we did We're it. are just right
2: a, here at the Santa Barbara Ball. There you go. You go up to, to yeah. see a concert there and there's, you know, two, three trucks. And, yeah. and it's uh, Remember
3: the Beatles had three amplifiers and a drum kit. Right. You know, and they borrowed RPA. You know, <laughs> they, they, this, there, was a, there was a small... It, it, it downsized and the songs and the players were enough. They didn't right. need to be froth all over them.
2: Right. Anybody today you, uh, you want to go see?
3: Bruno Mars. There's uh-huh. lots, of, lots of people I want to see. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of still, I'm still a fan of music and I hear all these people, you know, there's, there's not a new Beatles yet, no matter, there may be people making loads of money, but it never was about who makes the most money. You know, the Beatles got 30 quid at the, the cavern. Right. And when they made so, it, so they you went...
2: you say the cavern. Explain what the cavern is.
3: The cavern was like the the centre of the of the music business in England. If you could play the cavern, you were on that next shelf. Oh, And the Beatles had started there and the Undertakers and the Searchers and Jerry and the Pacemakers and all these Liverpool bands had started there. And I saw the Kinks play there because they wanted to be on that shelf. They were mm. called the Ravens and I saw the Kinks. And, and other bands would come and try to get in that door where if they c- accepted you at the cavern, they accepted you in a, on the next shelf. Mm-hmm. So that's all it was really. It was like a, a stepping stone to people's acceptance. And London had the, had another club that you needed to play, but that was more bluesy than we were. The cavern was a pop room. Mm-hmm. You could be R&B and play there. The Undertakers was a big three. Was in, I'm just talking about people that don't exist anymore, but it was a stepping thing to right. the next level of the business. And and like I said, Bob Wooler didn't like our music, but he liked us. So we got in there and we were so young that we could play there all day. We could play the, the lunchtime, which was girls on their lunch break. And we could play the junior one because we were juniors and then let us play the nighttime because we were already good enough to play the, the big showroom.
2: Is there anything that you haven't done? <laughs> I
3: mean, you know, I just want to, I just want to continue, you know, and, and, you know, Somebody once said, like Ella Fitzgerald once said, you know, the end looks a lot like the beginning. Mm. And I doubt that. I would like the end to go out bigger than the beginning. Right. If the end is like in some bar, like in Manchester, the Golden Garter, you know, with three men who are not really into it, with the backs to the group, I don't think that's my end. I'd like to go out at a state fair.
2: That doesn't sound like a bad thing. <laughs> yeah. you know, we had lunch a couple of weeks ago, and and I I could sit and and listen to you and your stories, and and what you've done since the beginning, and 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 I I know. You're busy you have you have things to do but would you come back again
3: absolutely anytime uh, you want i am it's not far i know i live so about right i could have walked i could have walked here
2: <laughs> but but it's so much fun having you here peter it's and, always and, good seeing you jimmy and, you know i'm a fan of you, know, you you know i could i could talk to you forever and uh and, and please come back i mean i will i promise i will i'd love it we we've, we've wanted to have you on with us for a long time but i think you know, we have a great following, not only in sports, but also very knowledgeable, you know, in in, in everything. and uh, you know, having you on is has well, been, been a thrill.
3: Certainly a thrill for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny
4: This episode is made possible by PWC. It's getting hot out here.